Growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was surrounded by a bit of a moral panic concerning video games. It seemed like so many adults around me were concerned that video games were normalizing violent behaviors and turning kids into aggressive adults. As someone that wasn't super interested in video games and didn't think these concerns applied to me in my life, I tended to tune the conversations out. In adulthood, however, I've gained much more appreciation not just for video games, but for games in general. In particular, I've grown to appreciate the ways in which games are a form of art in themselves, the way that games can allow for escapism, and also the ability for games to convene community and form connections among people all around the world, something that's proven to be extra important during the pandemic. So what if, instead of panicking that games were turning kids violent, we celebrated games and their ability to encourage nature-positive behaviors? How does the intersection of games as art, as escapism, and as a community convener all come together to help us, as individuals, learn more about the natural world? Today, we're exploring the role of games in helping to heal our relationship to nature and tackling the climate crisis. Hey, this is Jordan. And this is Mimi. And welcome to the Imperfect EcoHero Podcast. The series that connects community, normalizes imperfections, and empowers heroes. We are so excited to welcome today's guest, Daniel Fernandez Galiote. Daniel is a game designer and a doctoral researcher at the gamification group Tampere University. His research aims to understand the potential of games for climate change engagement and combines the study of existing games with the creation of new ones. His work is enriched by frequent conversations with scientists, educators, activists, and game developers, among others. It was such a joy to talk to Daniel and learn more about him and his work. Not only is his research incredibly interesting and unlike anything we've talked about on this podcast before, But Daniel is such a compassionate, down-to-earth, and intelligent person. We're so excited for you to hear our conversation with him. Hi, Daniel. Morning, afternoon. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good. Good morning to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Oh, yeah. We're super excited for today's conversation, and I'm excited for our listeners to hear you, too. So let's Mm -hmm. just jump right into it, and why don't you tell a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey as both a journalist and a video game designer and just kind of how those two life paths have intersected. Right now, and I guess the, the reason why why I'm here right now is that uh, at the moment I'm a university researcher. I'm doing my doctoral studies at Tampere University in Finland. Um, and my topic is uh, climate change engagement through games, especially video games, but not only video games, but yeah, as you said, the the way that all of these, or let's say my life career started, this was uh, nowhere near this. I was trained uh, first as a journalist, so my, my bachelor's uh, was in journalism back in Barcelona, where I lived before, but then through a series of circumstances, I ended up moving to Finland and, and doing game studies first, and then doing this uh, which we call gamification, but it's generally the use of or the or the connection between games and and other issues that are non non playful. And um, and in the middle, of course, I went through through a phase in which I I finished my journalism studies, uh, and then I didn't see a clear way forward in which basically I could support an independent life through working as a journalist at that time. Um, 
so I decided to to go for studying uh, game design and game development. So I I did also a bit of that. So basically, yeah, I've been uh, writing things, creating games, and now also studying games that other people do as well. What I'm fascinated about is how that kind of led you down towards you know climate change. So when I was uh, studying journalism, it is true that I, I became interested in you know social issues and economic issues, and I did. Uh, my bachelor's thesis about things related to social movements and and poverty and immigration and things like this, but um, I didn't have this sort of focus on the environment at that time. But it is true that there was a bit of an amorphous environmental identity of sorts, but it wasn't very well uh, instrumentalized in 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 some you know deeper knowledge or, or deeper understanding of how things were. Then I only became more interested in in climate change and. And ecology and environmental issues in general, or sustainability as a broad topic, uh, fairly recently, I think for basically for my master's thesis. So that was in 2019. It is very, it is interesting because uh, I guess we are here trying to tell like a coherent or cohesive story about how, how things become what they are. But it is it is interesting that I don't have a clear cause of why. I went there. I think I was very confused at the time. I had to pick a topic, which anyone who has ever done a thesis, I guess they are like, oh, what am I going to do about this you know, hugely important work that I have to, to undertake right now? And I think I probably had a list of so many things that I was interested in. And this well, probably included like different social issues that I was interested in or, or different tensions that exist in the modern world. And, and I guess uh, climate change was just one of them. And in the end, it kind of crystallized into that, which I guess I perceived more or less intuitively that this was a big deal. Because as I said, I, I was certainly not very knowledgeable about these things. I'm curious if you had been inspired, like if part of you choosing the topic you did is because you were either directly or indirectly inspired by a game that you had played or or even worked on that that dealt with climate change within the game or is that only something that you've started exploring through your research i think it's more of the second which is um also tells us something about how how traditionally games and especially video games have have talked about nature and and these sort of environmental topics i think there is there is quite a bit of research uh saying how usually when we when we see the environment i'm talking about the non-human environment uh in video games it's it's usually something that is treated in a very either superficial way or antagonistic way to you know you're the you're the protagonist in the game you're trying to do things and there's an obstacle or there is something that is just there for decoration or something um so i would say that I I was thinking about this and I don't really think that there was any pre-existing game that that made me think that maybe there was there was something interesting here but then as you said when when I started uh, researching this and, and thinking more about that um it is true that there is there is a bit of a movement towards um well of course being more considerate towards the idea of nature in general but also in in game developers, you know, people who work in even in big companies, in big game studios, uh, are becoming more and more interested in in doing something that is different. So I would say that it's something that is, for me at least, it's very recent. And uh, there was a bit of a when I was a kid, especially, you know, if I was playing, uh, did you 
maybe you, you probably had it. Do you remember Tamagotchi? I love that. I have multiple going at once sometimes. Okay. Oh my gosh, so yeah. I think I think that sort of thing, that sort of wanting to care for a creature and, and creating this, which in the end is like having a pet, but I, I never had a dog or a cat. I only had like fish and turtles and that sort of thing, which are not very interactive. Um, but you know, these are these sort of games also give you this idea of wanting to care. For, for someone who is different to you in a very limited way, in a very kind of... Um, but, you know, I think there might be something there, but certainly I, I don't think there was a very conscious idea of, yes, now I'm interacting with, with uh, you know, fictional nature in a game. I never thought of Tamagotchi in that way, that, like, yeah, you're, you're nurturing this artificial being, but I... I don't know if you played this, but Neopets was also a really big part of my I was just thinking yeah. Neopets was a big one too. I, I, and I never played Neopets. And I think it's one of those that I knew that existed because I started getting interested in this sort of thing, but I, I never knew it before. You know, you said your relationship with nature kind of, and video games kind of um, mesh together in your research. Would you say that your understanding and your relationship with nature has changed since you started your master's and PhD? Like, would you say it was different before and now it's and now it's something new? Or would you say it's just kind of evolved and stayed kind of the same? I think it has probably changed a lot in the sense that, for example, now we were talking about this and the example that I made of the Tamagotchi of, or Neopets, you know, you're caring about uh, something. then. Immediately, for example, there, there is there is sort of a problem in my head where I'm like, oh, now this is this is a certain relationship that you're constructing to the environment that is okay. I am the caretaker, and there is this thing that is depending on me, and I'm in the center. And there's so this um, this sort of automatic problematizing of things and being like, oh, well, maybe you know, maybe nature is something different than than a human in the center and and taking care of the garden, let's say. Uh, maybe it's more complex than that and you're just a part of a network of incredibly complicated things so I would say that with the studying of these things and of course reading uh, from people who know much more than me there is all of this I think it's a process of decentering the idea of what a human is and putting it into perspective which is something that many people do when they when they for example they start to gaze up on the sky and be like, oh, I'm so small and time is so big and this sort of thing. There is, there is like an intuition of that. Um, but I think that studying it puts a bit of a system into it and also the realization that even in very practical terms, we depend on so many things and so many systems and so many living things that, yeah, I think, I think it's also related to the idea that before this, I was very interested in very human problems, which of course are incredibly important, but it was difficult for me to see beyond people. And I don't think seeing beyond people negates the importance of the well-being of people, but it just makes a more uh, complex picture out of it. So I would say, yes, my, my, in my understanding of all of this, it, I think it's a bit more complicated, which doesn't mean that I have more answers. I, I feel equally as lost as ever. Uh, but at least it's it's a more complex question and, and I think a more interesting uh, way of discussing it. I think that's really interesting because something that you just said about humans being at the center of these games, I never thought of it in that way. And in some ways it makes sense because you're playing the game, right? But with, mm -hmm. with Tamagotchi, with Neopets, 
there's kind of like the this godlike element. And I wonder if these games are really attractive because they deal with nature or because you you're in that that like seat of control. Especially as a kid, like I didn't get power and I didn't get control in a lot of situations, but with my Tamagotchi and with my Neopets, I did. So maybe that's what I really, or maybe it's like, maybe both are true. Maybe I really like the nature and the taking care of something element, but I also really like that, that power element to it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's absolutely uh, true that at least in some genres of games, or at least some of the motivations of uh, people for playing would definitely be this idea of uh, in this, in this space, I feel like I'm in control to an extent, or I feel that I, even that I matter, that, you know, I'm the protagonist of something and I'm building something or, or things are happening to me and I'm making them happen. Uh, so there is, there is a lot of that. But, uh, but at the same time, I also feel that there are, there are, there can be games where the, where the main motivator is not, is not necessarily this, this sort of power fantasy. This is an expression that many people use when they refer to this phenomenon. Uh, many people who are perfectly content and happy with just being part of a community, even though they are not the, the main piece of it, or even just feeling a sense of submission to a, to a system that is bigger than themselves, or just being told a story. Um, you know, it's, there are many things, but I would say that definitely one of the things, and, and this is, I would say this is something that we can find a lot in, in Western culture and individualist cultures that you matter, you are the, let's say, the chief of whatever you do. And, and, and I think this resonates with, with many stories that we tell and with many games that we play and everything, but it doesn't have to be this way. Because there, are, there are many humans who don't have that exact set of values or that worldview. I guess a follow-up question to that is, do you think games can play a role in shifting values, um, like taking it from that, I, I matter, I'm in control to this is all like a big community, like ecological community where we all play a part, but none of us is totally in control. Mm -hmm. I think, I think they can. And uh, I'm not a professional educator, but when people who are knowledgeable in pedagogy or they, or they are, you know, teaching little kids and everything, there are tons of games that, that people play in kindergartens or, or in, um, you know, um, in education, in primary education, or even before, that are all about, okay, now we're going to play this game, but where, you know, the, the underlying goal is that we are going to share, we are going to discuss, we are going to reach compromises, all these sort of things that, of course, in, in, in those moments are very intentional and they are very much about, okay, now you're the kid and I'm the adult and I'm going to, you know, propose a game that is going to be good for you and, and these sort of ideas. But I think that adults work, work in a similar way, although our personalities are already developed in a certain way for the most part. But I think that any influences like books that change our lives or conversations or friendships or relationships of any kind, I think that many people who play games would agree that they have certain games in their lives, uh, whether they are about nature or they are about something else, that really resonated with them and they are like, oh, so definitely, and I think that the games have many, many different elements that, that can aid in this, in this sort of process of, of building yourself as a person uh, and helping with, you know, adopting different perspectives or this sort of thing. And, and of course, there are games where you just, you don't need to be a human in a game, right? You can be an animal, for example, 
And there are games about that, and they are very, very interesting. Because even though it's always a human imagining how being an animal feels like and designing that thing for another human, uh, well, still it's an effort. I think it's still it's interesting to, to inhabit those sort of spaces. I was going to say, I wonder if video games can kind of help increase people's environmental consciousness through systems thinking, because that was something that like past guests have talked about is a lot of people find it really difficult to see how climate change is actually all of these interconnecting issues and interconnecting parts that like make up climate change. And like a lot of what people do is they tackle climate change from the top down when really if uh, like the goal should be to tackle all the parts on the bottom and then in turn when things get solved climate change reduces and so i'm like curious if like that's kind of um something that you guys think about when designing games is like and i'm just thinking about the games that i used to play it was always like there was like one problem and then you had to go through all these different levels and they were always all these like side games side quests side uh, things that you had to accomplish and and I realized like the, the one problem was actually all of these other individual little problems that I had to then go and do first before I could even tackle this. And is that kind of like something that you guys are aware of and trying to push to get folks that are playing these games to like think about climate change as all of these interconnecting, interconnecting parts instead of this as like one big problem? Yes. Uh, in my case, at least, uh, the latest thing that we are working on is exactly like that. It, it's extremely um, system focused in the sense that it's trying to, it's going from the small to the, to the large. So it's going through these uh, little day-to-day things that kind of remind us of larger systems. And it's talking about, you know, let's think about uh, the computer that we are using right now to have this conversation. Can we interrogate where this computer is coming from and, and you know, who made it? Uh, who made a profit out of it, which is probably not the same people who actually put their hands on the on the device and, and who made the big money, then what is going to happen with these computers when, when we are done with them? Where are they going? So if we start thinking about individual uh, elements, very quickly we end up with a, with like an unraveling that is that is completely uh, unmanageable, but we always have the element to go back to and to think through our personal experience um, to think about all of these things that are happening. So the, the game that we are doing right now is very much about this. It's about connecting the small things to the, to the big picture. Um, but at the same time, I think that games in general have this quality, especially when, when we're talking about, uh, for example, strategy games, where you have all of this room for exploration, for seeing, Okay, what if I do this? What is the you know possible consequence? It's low stakes in the sense that okay, I can I can always try again. I'm not I'm not really you know committing my life to something. It's just a, a very contained space where I can explore different magnitudes of space and time. Now I can look at small things, but then I can look at impossibly big things. So I think that uh, games are a sandbox usually that is absolutely great for this. All of this that like you were talking about and even going back to that um, thing, uh, something that Mimi had said about um, how a lot of these games puts humans in control. And it made me wonder, do you folks, when you uh, design games, ever consult climate psychotherapists and like psychology specific experts? Because one of the problems with people's uh, engagement in climate change is that um, 
most people have an issue with their ego and it's specifically like needing to have control and the whole thing about climate change and like where it's heading is like we don't really have a lot of control over it and people often disengage when they realize that they're powerless does that make sense like is that something that like you have ever like like done research on or like talked with two other psychotherapists when designing these games is just like how do we give people control but then not all of it does that at all make sense I feel like I I had it I know I I think it does and it's something that I was thinking at some point I was very interested in this ideas of climate grief and climate anxiety and and one of um at some point, I had the project that my current game would be would be about this, and it would be about trying to help people make sense about these things. Um, and I'm very fortunate to work in a research group that has um, people from many different backgrounds, but including psychologists. And then I was talking to a couple of of people who have uh, experience with uh, psychological issues, and they said you may be able to do something like this, but then you should be very, very careful between to understand the difference between what is a clinical intervention and what is just something that you are doing for general well-being, for trying to support people into, into things, etc. So that, w- that was the first dividing line that I, that I never thought about. That is, if, if I wanted to do something that is for helping people who have like a, either a diagnosed problem or something that they feel that is, that is incredibly complicated for them, then I would need to be very, very careful and very, very serious about it. So then that, that way got, you know, okay, then, then let's go for the general well-being idea. Um, and um, what I do sometimes is I read uh, articles from from psychologists who are specialized in in these um, in these issues, or even or even not psychologists, but researchers who do this this sort of work, and indirectly in the things that I do, I do try to do things in a way that, that is that is let's say conscious, or in a, or in a way that I un- that I understand that whatever the game is telling you will have some sort of impact, especially depending on, on where you are at that moment psychologically. Um, and for example, one of the things that I've been reading and that I like is the idea of, um, there, is, there, is a, there is a researcher called uh, Maria Oyala, uh, who is, I think, in, in Sweden, but she has some, some papers about how children and adolescents cope with, with climate anxiety and environmental, um, you know, let's say ne- negative states of mind in general. And there was, there is the idea that some of them used a way of coping that is meaning uh, focused coping. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing, I might not remember it exactly, but the idea is that with, uh, without negating the problem, without pretending that everything is fine and, and not even not even assuming that you're going to be triumphant and in the end everything will go well and everything, you are able to, to reframe things and rephrase the way that you, that you, let's say, tackle the problem or the world in a way that, that is focused on finding the positive, uh, the positive elements in the experience. And the positive things could be, for example, the things that you do daily because you have a certain either a spiritual belief 
or you have some values that you are consistent with. And, uh, and I think it's totally possible to be like, okay, this is looking really, really bad. It is entirely possible that we will not make it, but still, I am doing whatever I can. I know extraordinary people who are doing also their best. And this is a source of positive emotion for me. And I'm willing to enjoy it as much as possible. Uh, and the two things are completely independent. They are, of course, related because I'm, you know, if the problem didn't exist, I wouldn't be doing all of these things. But at the same time, I choose to focus on, on the good things that I do. And this is not entirely removed from the idea of control, I realize, because there is a big part that is about the things that I do. But it's removed to a degree of the consequence of things whether the consequence is successful or not, what is important is that I try to, to say it very, very roughly and, and in the way that I have it in my mind. So to kind of answer the question, I think that these, these things are extremely complicated, even though I try to read about it. Um, and there is, there is an inspiration. Or there are, for example, there's, there's tons of things like this. There is a there's a psychologist called uh, Britt Ray who is also is about to release a book about this or has just released a book about this. There is there are communities like Active Hope who are all about doing this this let's say work that is both let's say mental but also social with others. So I I do try to keep all of these things in mind, but there is not a particular. Um, structure that is informed by their teachings or the things that they do uh, and i i definitely haven't done yet at least any game that is purposely and 100 percent focused on helping people you know navigate these feelings or these ideas but i think that would be that would be lovely and, and it's extremely important you know a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is this notion of imperfectionism mm -hmm. in environmentalism and you know you were talking a lot about how like games have the potential to really like make a difference but do you ever worry when you're designing games that you could be making a mistake that could be imperfect that could potentially have negative consequences like do you deal with this uh, feeling of perfectionism, especially now that you're doing research and you're now seeing how everything is interrelated. Do you, do you find that this is something that you like battle with personally is this idea of perfectionism in not only just your games, but just your own activism and mm -hmm. in life? I think all the time. This is something that um, when I started uh, my doctoral studies, we had this, uh, this university course on ethics. And everything was very much oriented to malpractice, to things that you would intentionally do wrong for personal gain or something. But I was much more um, interested in negligence. What if I do something that unwillingly or because I don't know better or, or something like this, then I end up doing something that is not of science. Well, hopefully not of scientific quality because that doesn't have, you know, very direct consequences on, on people's lives, hopefully. Uh, like no one is going to base their policy off of my article or, or you know, create an, uh, a drug out of what I'm saying. Uh, but then, you know, something that would really not be good and what happens with that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I've been really worried about that and, and whatever competence a person thinks they have. I think probably the more responsibility you have, the more cautious you have to be about all of these things. So I would say in research, yes, all of the time, really trying to do things as good as possible without 
without really doing it in a way that you never finish something. Uh, so finding that point in which something is good enough uh, is really difficult. And I guess until you have a lot of experience, you don't really get that point very well. And then with, with uh, making games, I think it's a similar thing. Uh, I'm lucky that, you know, I'm not famous. Not many people know the things that I do. Not many people follow me. So, (laughs) yeah, well, let's see. But, you know, when when I say something, if it's actually damaging for someone, I'm very lucky that there's very, very few people (laughs) listening to what I'm saying. So that's a relief. Um, If I was like a role model and I had, you know, thousands or millions of people listening to what I say, I think it would be paralyzing. And, and it would be very, very not engaging because everything that I would say sometimes would be, I don't know, just, you know, here's, here's what I think, but what do you think? And that would be absolutely impossible because you cannot have a conversation with a million people at the same time. So there, there is this idea that my, my style sometimes is just doubt and me saying, well, I think that maybe this could be this way. And then if a person comes and says, I think you're totally wrong because of these three reasons, then it's perfectly possible that I would be like, huh, okay, maybe you're right. Um, so in that sense, I think my the things that I design many times, um, except for the few times where I'm trying to give an answer, um, I think there's an advantage in, in posing questions to people that is, you're not, you're not really telling people, uh, yeah, I think you should really, really do this. This is going to be good for you. Uh, you really need a lot of confidence and and knowledge to say that sort of thing. Um, So yeah, fortunately, since I didn't go for this very complicated uh, idea of creating an instrument that would be, you know, psychologically valid and helping people to cope with things and it would be like therapy, I think that would have been a lot of uh, responsibility. Instead of that, what I'm doing is, okay, according to what I have read or according to what I know or people have told me, it might be a good idea that, for example, if you want to start doing, uh, you know, action that is good for the climate or the environment in general, or you want to live more sustainably, this thing and this thing and this thing seem to be, you know, good in their impact. Um, Then we can have a conversation. I'm like, yeah, sure. We can talk about renewable energy and we can talk about all of the million problems that come with renewable energy because nothing is ever perfect. But, you know, at a basic level, I think that between, between option A, which is burning oil, and option B, which is installing solar panels in your house, then I'm pretty confident that you can go with B. So it's that sort of very basic level of, uh, you know, not really committing very hard to saying things that honestly maybe I don't know about what about in your in your personal life just like in your day-to-day routine and your day-to-day choices that only really directly impact you because I know for myself and, and Jordan's expressed this as well in other episodes that when we first started to learn about the climate crisis and really dive into all that information we almost went into this like panic mode where mm-hmm. we went we tried to like reduce our our impact our environmental impact by like a hundred percent and that was just for ourselves, that was not sustainable. Like we both hit burnout really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Did you have a similar experience or a different experience or just, yeah. How do you, how do you navigate those day-to-day choices of environmentalism now that you're kind of in that environmental world? Uh, unfortunately, I think I've recognized what you said because there was a time 
in which uh, very openly I was almost unable to um, to having a conversation with a person if what they were saying I perceived to be essentially damaging in the way that I perceive. For example, I, I could have a conversation with a person who would be talking to me about the cars that they liked or the fashion that they enjoyed. And I would be absolutely unable to relate to those ideas. I would be like, no, I refuse. Like, I don't know. I think, I think this is wrong. Uh, and, and that was not very functional. I was not very, very well capable of functioning in society in that way. So, uh, in the end, uh, yeah, for better or worse, unless you move into a, some sort of utopian community where everyone is sort of monolithically thinking in that way and they can, you know, they can do it because the environment is facilitating that. For me, it's been really helpful to try to think that it is not just me. It is the things that are around me that either facilitate or make it difficult for me to do things that I think are good. So for example, uh, right now I'm very, I'm very lucky that I work uh, 10 minutes away from where I live. My, my mode of, of transportation is, you know, I'm, I'm walking everywhere and I live in a small city and I don't, I don't even need to take a bus. Well, that is wonderful. But, you know, if I was living in a different, um, in a different city at a different moment in my life, and I perceive that the only way that I can, for example, make a living in, in however system I'm part of is to drive wherever, then, you know, it's completely unproductive to live in a way that I'm, yeah, that I'm, that I'm working against myself all the time and the things that I do. Another thing is when not becoming like only just satisfied with that and being like, well, what can I do? Well, there's tons of things that a person can do. If if the environment doesn't support your choices, you can definitely have a conversation with people, especially, for example, if you want to be a vegetarian and your family are like, no, you will never do that in my home for whatever reason. Uh, well, I mean, if they are your family and, and allegedly they love you, you should be able to have a conversation with them. And even, you know, if you're, if you're young and you're used to others cooking your food and they are like, I'm not going to cook different food for you because I don't feel like it, well, then you take responsibility and cook your own food. But there is always accommodations that can be done or, or you know, things that, are, that they will never be perfect, I agree, because from the start, you cannot participate in this economic system and pretend that everything you will do is going to be you know, morally perfect and pristine. That is not possible and it's not your fault and my fault because it's a system that was in place before we were born so this is how it is now that that is very different from saying you know i cannot do anything about this no that is not true you can you can you know you can pressure other people to change you can have conversations you can try to listen to all the things that people have thought about that maybe you didn't um but yeah, it's, I think it's uh, trying to be pragmatic in a way that allows me to function with other people who maybe don't think the way that I do, but being very self-critical and very aware that it is possible that sometimes I will fall into a certain you know, hypocrisy or I will end up being you know, too satisfied with things without really making the effort that I need to do.
one thing that you've briefly talked to us about in our previous meeting was this dark side of video games and how it is, there is an environmentally destructive aspect mm-hmm. to the gaming industry. How do you navigate that when you're, when you're dealing with like, yeah, I'm promoting this really great thing, this thing that's hopefully going to help change values or influence folks, but also there's this really destructive side to it. Yes. I think that um, there is never, uh, and, and at some point maybe maybe I wasn't, I wasn't thinking very much about that, so I, I intuitively thought that there was a way to reconcile, okay, you know, making digital games and, you know, yeah, especially especially digital games. I was about to say generally software, but digital games are much more resource consuming often than, than you know, Microsoft Word or anything that you use in, in your daily life. So at some point I was like, yeah, you know, but but then we are doing this for good. So maybe one cancels the other. I don't I don't think that is that is particularly insightful. I think you cannot really eliminate the, the the damaging part of something just because you're you're repurposing it for something good. So I think that um, unfortunately there is no comfortable answer to this. I think that um, first of all the the some of the problems that I'm aware of or or the ones that I that I think about sometimes is that you know making games takes energy to begin with all of the design and all of the development. Uh, uh, thankfully, lately, video games have moved mostly from a very uh, kind of, you know, shop-oriented physical disc uh, system to just, okay, buying, purchasing, and downloading online. And that is hopefully less damaging in the sense that it's not part of global shipping, etc. although downloading is also consuming energy. Then they consume uh, a lot of energy for being used, especially if they require like big machines and devices that have lots of processing power and huge, you know, graphic, graphic processors and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, of course, the other bad thing is that um, when you are done with your gaming computer or your gaming console or something, uh, it will usually end up in a faraway place where a person will uh, have to live with it and in a, in a massive massive like a dumpster or, or trying to repurpose some some of the minerals inside and that is that is a health issue that is that is of course a, an environmental catastrophe sometimes so there are all of those things there is a problem before you play while you play and after you play and some of those things can be mitigated like the electricity that you're using is renewable then sure you know the use is not so bad but there are all of those things and i don't think they get particularly cancelled because of Oh, you know, I'm playing an environmentally conscious game, so I guess then it's fine. Um, there are uh, people who are doing proper studies into this to see what exactly is the impact of all of these things and how to make it, uh, how to try to make things better. There is a book that is, again, either just out or about to come out by by an author called uh, Benjamin Abraham or Abraham, however you say it, that um, it's about it's about all of this uh, in in great great part of the book is always about this physical aspect of the of digital games. Uh, and there are many, many institutions and, and groups of people who are trying to to envision how how it is that you make an environmentally sustainable games industry. Uh, and there are no perfect answers so far. 
just to be honest, I think that there is there is a system right now that is like many other things that get produced in in you know in in the industrial capitalist system where you have externalized industries that go wherever whatever is cheaper, whatever uh, you know the value of labor is lower, whatever the environmental laws are lower. And there is where you know consoles are manufacturers are that's where you know all of these things are created. And one very interesting thing that an author was saying is that it's not only that the system is going towards uh, where things are cheaper and where producers can get away with more, with doing more damage. It's also designed in a way that the, that the consumer, who is usually a person who lives in the West, etc., is has a certain affluence, at least compared to the person who produced the machine, uh, is completely removed from all of that context. You just if you don't put interest in knowing where things are coming from, you will never know because no one is going to tell you. And that's that's uh, how they want the system to be. So there is this huge this huge thing and this huge problem. So, um, for example, I'm now I, I have a computer that was that I got for doing my research and developing my game, and it has a, a sticker here that says CO two compensated. And, and allegedly, I looked into the website, uh, the company, and they say, yeah, 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 you know, we are kind of offsetting all of the emissions from the production of the computer and the use that you would make until you get rid of it. And I'm like, yeah, cool, that feels good. Uh, there's something that tells me that it's not so simple. But, you know, there, there's this sort of industry side way of trying to take care of problems that is very much based on, well, you know, let's make things more efficient, let's make things less damaging in a way that if I'm damaging here, let's maybe plant a tree over there and that's fine. You know, I'm not really sure how, how effective these things are, to be honest. Um, but there are people trying to, to really benchmark what exactly is the impact that is being done and then ways of hopefully uh, doing it uh, better. But there is a component that will always be about reducing or making things in a different way. Uh, so for example, there are people who are who make video games and they very explicitly don't want to make graphics that are you know, super high-end, low, um, very high energy consuming, or maybe they are committed to um, repurposing, uh, for example, assets that they already use for a different game. It was like, okay, instead of spending now months of computer power into drawing new things i'm gonna take the things that i already drew for the other game and i'm gonna use them in here maybe with little changes or something um and that is an ethical uh, choice and an ethical position that also has an impact because then the game either consumes less or the production was was less resource intensive but as i was saying there is there is no real uh option or real alternative, I think. And fundamentally, it's a, it's a question of asking, well, maybe, um, this is a very good research question, is how, how sustainable play in general looks like. What sort of things could, be, uh, could we be doing for entertainment and leisure that are not so resource intensive? So instead of you know, supporting, uh, yeah, this, this, this is a bit, um, would say maybe complicated for many people, but it's instead of um, supporting these big shows where you need to fly entire teams of uh, 
you know, sports players to a distant country to play a match and then come back. Maybe you can go to the park and play with a rope with your friends. Like, it sounds silly to an extent because we are not used to this sort of thing. It's like, how can you compare, you know, soccer or Formula One to just being in the park playing with a ball with your friends? Well, it's just forms of entertainment. It is, it is a way of, of spending your time that is just to make your life a bit more bearable or organized. So in this sense, I think there is a certain problem with culture becoming technified and, and everything being more and more mediated to these this sort of resource-intensive technologies. And there is something that, that efficiency can do, but efficiency cannot be the only answer because the more you, you make things efficient, the more that gives space for new things to occupy that sort of space and you never end making things efficient. Some people are proponents of that sort of thing. I'm not so sure. I think that to an extent, uh, reducing uh, is something that really needs to be done in this sense. But these are, these are highly, uh, for some people, highly unpopular uh, ideas. Again, if you're a person who hates their job and you have you have to work so many hours a day, and then your only source of uh, entertainment is coming home at night and then watching a streamer play video games or playing video games yourself with your friends or doing something like this. Who am I to tell you that what you're doing is wrong? Uh, well, we can try to find a way that is that is less damaging, but this really needs to be done in a, in a sensitive way, I would say. Yeah, I I feel like that's kind of something that's like a a bit of an issue that has people very divisive uh, uh, over like what and how to tackle it. Cause like, like you said, on the one end, we have people focused on just reducing and making everything more efficient and just kind of like taking the problems that we already have and, and not necessarily reimagining them, but just kind of making these problems less of a problem. And then you have the folks that are dedicated to, okay, instead of putting our effort there, how do how are we going to reimagine where like people are always going to play video games like how do we what does green video gaming looking and that's what i kind of like about what you said is that there are people trying instead of trying to come up with a better answer trying to ask a better question and i think that's what like i think i'm i'm I'm, like curious to see what what where research comes up comes out of is like we need a lot more people trying to reimagine a new world not uh, rejig the world we currently have because it's clearly not working. Um, yeah. You know, one of the themes that we talk a lot about is the importance of community, especially now of all times when we're all so isolated. Um, what has what has that that experience been for you? Like, especially now in a new country where you also don't speak the language. Like, mm-hmm. how has it been interacting with, uh, I guess, the climate community in Finland? Like, has that also been different from? talking to folks back in Spain about Mm -hmm. climate change. When I was in Spain, I wasn't really very systematic about these things. And and when I go back, for example, to visit my family, um, then maybe I have conversations with my friends and everything, but there is not a real real contact with uh, activists, for example. I was considering at some point to, to be in touch with activists back in Barcelona and be like, hey, maybe I can do something you know, from here, some communication things, website stuff, whatever, that doesn't require me to be there. But then I thought that that's when I thought, well, why shouldn't I try to get in contact with the people around here? 
uh, and that is where I started. And I sent some emails, and I and I attended some some trainings, and uh, this was with Extinction Rebellion. Um, and then you know I attended some meetings, and and we did some things. Um, but as you said, there is there is a bit of a language. There are two barriers that I can think of. One of them is the language. So I can attend a meeting and I can follow what people are saying in Finnish because sometimes they accommodate. And, and even though I'm the only foreigner there, they are like doing the effort of speaking English just because I'm there. That doesn't feel great. They are, they are good people. They, they, are, they really try to make everyone feel welcome. But it is myself who is like, why, why do these people need to just change to a language that is not theirs just because I'm there? Um, so then you end up with another not ideal situation that is everyone is speaking Finnish. I kind of understand what the conversation is about, but then I'm not really into that, especially because people are not thinking all the time of directly asking you, well, what do you think? Um, so <clears throat> that ends up being not very practical for me in the end. So lately I haven't been very active for these sort of reasons. And, and also because of the second reason, which is, um, there's a lot of activism that is important nowadays that is risky. Um, it is it is nonviolent for sure, but it, it's going against the law in certain ways. So people need to be willing to get arrested. Um, as a foreigner, uh, I'm not very comfortable with the idea of being arrested in a country where I'm not. You know, I don't know the system. If uh, if the police is talking to me in uh, in the police station, uh, like it's in my imagination because it has never happened because it haven't I haven't allowed myself for that to happen. It's really not maybe not overwhelming, but it's really really uncomfortable and weird. And and so so I have never put myself in that situation. So I have had conversations, participated in some events with people. I have done things that are very very low risk. But something more than that feels uh, very difficult for me. And that is why, you know, and, and I have been with other communities as well. There is an urban garden uh, near to where I live, and I've been involved in that as well. But there is, there is always this certain, which is totally on my side, but there is this idea that I cannot feel completely that I belong in a community. No, and, and I and I like the point that you just brought up, and I think a lot of a lot of people feel the same, and I know I did. Uh, like when you when you want to get involved, um, sometimes there's that fear that like it you know it just might not be the right fit for you, and sometimes you don't actually know what that means. And I still don't even know what that means where my place is in the environmental movement. Even even though we've done this podcast now for a year, I'm like, is this exactly where my skill set should be? Should I be elsewhere? Should I do other things? And I've definitely been involved in a lot of organizations like you've talked about where I've just like not felt like I've really fit in. And sometimes it's that maybe everyone is 40 years older than me. And I'm like the youngest there. And I'm like, okay, this, this doesn't feel quite right. Or everyone's really, really young and, and, and still in school. And I'm not, and I'm like, okay, this also doesn't really feel what I like. So, and I like this, that it's like a, it's a process for you. Cause like, like you said, like right now you're currently, you know, you're involved in the urban garden and you're doing other things, but I was going to say, are you trying to look for other things to do? Or are you kind of content with what you're doing now? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, at the moment, for example, I've also been involved online in online communities. There is this, there's this big organization that is the International Game Developers Association, uh, and they have a special interest group about the, about the climate. 
and and it's a lot of people it's at least dozens of people from around the world trying to create these different uh, guidelines or different ways of doing that will make the games industry and, and game making more environmentally friendly both like physically and in the sense of content that is more um, environmentally conscious so that is something that that as well i have been trying to be a part of although Again, and this might be this might be also a trait thing or, or a feature of my character. I'm not very good in meetings with lots of people. Like it's very difficult for me to just uh, just interrupt someone, for example, or say something out loud. When so, in that sense, for me, when 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 a community has these mechanisms were put in place, where the main thing that is happening is meetings where people can say things, especially if it's, for example, when it's around the world. Sometimes the, the the scheduling is very weird. Like, okay, am I going to have a meeting now at 9, 10 p.m. for one or two hours? And, and you know, and, and I think the problem is huge and the problem really deserves that sort of effort. I mean, I wish climate change was solved by having meetings at 9 p.m. I, I'm, I'm ready to do that. But, you know, there, there, is this, there is this certain discomfort all the time and the feeling that maybe, as you were saying, maybe... It is not my place to be the person who are who is in in these sort of meetings because it's not really in my nature to have discussions with uh, you know seven or ten other people. Uh, you know maybe I should just you know not attend the meetings and then when someone needs something they can they can individually go to me and then I'm like oh yeah sure I will take a look at the document and, and put my ideas or something like this. But it's definitely difficult to find your place, especially when you feel that what you should be doing or what everyone around you seem, seems to be doing is so different. It is, it is complicated. And I, I don't think I will get rid of the, of the feeling that hmm, maybe I should do more, maybe I should do different. So I think it's, we have to make peace with that because it's what it is. I think the reflection that you just shared really it resonated with me a lot uh, in the sense of like, what, what more can I be doing? And when you were bringing up this idea of like going to a meeting at nine or 10 PM, I can envision myself in that situation and thinking, does that actually make a difference if I'm not there? Right. Like if I just don't go, the things will still get done. They'll still talk about like, does my presence actually even matter? And then I go through like that spiral of like, well, what's the point of what I'm doing and, and what are, are my actions even having an impact? So I don't know if that's something that you've dealt with, but just as you were sharing that, that reflection, it's definitely something that, that was brought up in my mind. Yes, for me, and I think what, what ends up justifying or, you know, my actions, even though they are tiny or anyone's actions for that matter, it, is that sometimes things interact in ways that are a bit nonlinear and, you know, even mysterious, like you, you never know if by being in that meeting, you will say one thing that will inspire someone else to talk to someone or you will meet a new person who, whatever. Um, so in that way, it really is based on, it's, it's almost based on hope. You know, you just hope that something will spark, but it's, it's, it's a problem that it's not predictable. It's not things that you know that you will put in 10 hours of work and you will produce 10 units of, you know, activism. It, yeah, because that's I a very would, like capitalistic way of thinking, right? So, I think so, exactly. Yeah. Something about everything has to be exactly productive, measurable in a way that I can feel justified in my existence. 
I yeah, I think that is that is a bit dangerous, and it's a way that that we have been probably living always because it, I guess it's our culture. I think all of us three are probably raised in that sort of um, maybe not family environment, but but general environment that that you know you are worth as much as you can produce and and, and create. Um, so it's important to remind yourself, you know, I could be, you know, laying down in bed for the rest of my life and my life will still have this, the exact same value because just it doesn't depend on what I'm doing. I'm just doing it because, because I think it's good. But hey, if I don't, I wasn't brought here with the obligation to do all of these things. I do what I can. That's it. So it's part of that, the idea that, we do things, we try to do them. If there is a return from them, then that's fine. But it's related, again, to control. I control more or less the things that I do. But whatever consequence there is, I can try to forecast. But, you know, if it, if it ends up in nothing, then it ends up in nothing. And, and it has the exact same value that I tried. So we've reached the end of our interview, Daniel. And like we always love to ask our guests, do you have any like last parting words for our listeners or just one thing you want everyone to know? Mm, not particularly. I think doing things like this, just having honest conversations about the, the things you do related to the climate or the environment or being honest about how you know we feel and, and the doubts we have or things that we might learn from each other think that is very important so i would encourage anyone to just having these conversations however informally or formally they want to have them but just to speak to one another and, and support each other we agree <laughs> we love that yeah. yeah more people just need to ha- like have that conversation and sometimes you just kind of need to start it and once you get the ball rolling everyone is like yeah. oh my god i want to talk about this too mm-hmm. and i think people are wanting to have more conversations right now anyway because we've gone the last two years with having so few of them right and yeah yeah so i i love that thank you so much for for joining us today it's been such a pleasure to talk to you mm-hmm. uh, and a pleasure nice. to listen to you too yeah, it's, yeah i've learned so much so much thank you thanks for listening to this episode of imperfect eco hero stay connected with us through our instagram at imperfect underscore eco hero or email us at imperfect hero at gmail.com If you want to learn more about our podcast or see resources related to this episode, visit our website, imperfectecohero.com.